When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. seen a wonderful show and we were all delighted to such an extent that when the lady in question sang her song with the chorus she's the belle of New York all the audience were singing with her and we had such a wonderful time at the show that we we didn't mind if we never went home we just kept saying she is the belle of New York she's the subject of all the town talk but we never realized that night that she was the belle of old Cork and that we were looking on at the opera house stage for the last time, something which I will never, never forget. I suppose, and dingy towards the end. In fact, we did a complete um, refurbishing of it the, the week before it burned down, and it was in really beautiful order the night it burned, glistening with all the old splendour of the gilt paint and the red uh, cushioning and everything. It was really beautiful that night. And a few hours later, it was gone. But it was a warm place. It was built entirely of wood. It used to give the local fire brigade chief here nightmares because he knew if, if ever there was a bit of fire or trouble, you know, that it would go up like matchstick, which it did in the, in the end. You know. The final curtain fell on that production of The Bell of New York on the 3rd of December 1955. It went up in flames on a wintry night over a week later when a disastrous fire raised the complete building within hours. The Examiner of December 13th headlined, Cork Opera House is destroyed. Thousands watch huge blaze. Dramatic ending to a hundred years of stage history. Never had the last moments of any drama played on this stage such an audience as last night's farewell one. A hundred years earlier, the Opera House threw open its doors to the public for the first time on Wednesday, 23rd of May, 1855. 
Then known as the Munster Hall, the Lord Lieutenant Earl of Carlisle, when performing the opening ceremony, expressed a wish that the hall was to be used for promoting the fine arts and practical sciences. Actor James N. Healy tells us about the early days. Well, the beginning of the Opera House is a building, the old Opera House boat we're talking about, it is in fact very interesting. The big theatre in Cork at that time was what is now the GPO. And in, 70, in 1875, that was sold to the post office authorities. So there was no major theatre in Cork. So a group of people got together and they purchased the, the Munster Hall and they opened it, refurbished it, opened it as the Theatre Royal and Cork Opera House in 1877. And that's how the Opera House as such started. In the first few decades of the 19th century, this present century. Opera was a great thing then with the, the Moody Manners Company and the, the Joseph O'Mara Company. Joseph O'Mara started singing with the Moody Manners Company and then uh, he formed his own with, with Fanny Moody. There were tremendous favorites here. Apart from the O'Mara and Moody Manners and Co., the visits of the Carl Rose Opera Company, here on a very rare early recording, created quite a stir. Writer Sean Beecher grew up within a stone's throw from the Opera House and recalls the arrival of these performers at Glanmire Station. They went to Dublin, from London, Dublin being the second city of the Emperor as it was then, and a very, very big city. So they then came down on the railways to Cork because the railways had been introduced not very much earlier. It was easy to get here. Uh, they were very, very popular in Cork, there's no doubt about that. Well, you would have had at that stage, you would have had the people actually coming down to the railway station to greet them. As they would, I would imagine, greet an All-Ireland team coming back on a Monday night, as they still do. And uh, on occasions, the carriages, of course, would have been sent down to meet the people. And on occasions, it is said, and I have no doubt it was true, that the people actually unhitched the horses, got between the shafts themselves, and would take him out the Glenmire Yard, up the uh, street, up by St. Patrick's, probably up McCorton Street, over the bridge into Bridge Street, through Patrick Street, up to the Victoria Hotel, pulling the horse, the cart, and the people inside, the tenors, or the singers inside. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry yeah. to draw the other analogy again with the cock hurling team, but as cock ca captains always sing from the Victoria Hotel, then the opera singers would actually sing from the uh, Victoria Hotel also, the crowd below. Uh, Flintoff Moore, I think, was one of their uh, major singers. He was very popular in Cork. And uh, he apparently, his party piece was Happy Moments, singing from the uh, window there. In happy moments, day by day, the sands of life may pass in swift but tranquil tide away from time's unerring glass. Yet hopes we used as bright to deem remembrance with 
and whose unfading beam is dearer than them all, whose pure and whose unfading beam is dearer than them all. Ever, the same atmosphere was ever generated as it was pre-war. Uh, I mean, the World, World War One just destroyed so many illusions of people, and things were so very tough after World War One that uh, I think it was different. And of course, the people's horizons were broadening out a bit too at that stage. And you had um, 1916 had happened. Remember, it began to change people from uh, opera back into nationalism and all that that involved too. So I don't think you really had the same atmosphere. Obviously, only the principals I would I know stayed in the Victoria Hotel. You had the supporting cast, and because they weren't being paid sufficient, they would have been scattered throughout the place. Uh, O'Fuelan mentions it in Viva Ma that they kept uh, people, and also I know that there were others of the cast uh, and actors generally kept in O'Sullivan's, who had a house on the Colke. They kept people also. Many of the artists stayed at the home of Sean O'Fuelan, within a stone's throw of the old theatre. My mother kept the boarders in the, the uh, from the theatre from the Cork Opera House in the in our house in Half Moon Street, and so this brought the theatre very much into the house. And as I tried to say in my autobiography, uh, it often was difficult for me to distinguish between imagination and reality as to which was the uh, which was the real thing. When, I mean, you know, when I saw a fellow acting as uh, second grave digger in Hamlet, you know, on Tuesday night and saw him coming in for his supper afterwards. It was rather difficult for me to distinguish, as I say, between the, the fact and the fancy. I lived between the church and the theatre. One was 300 yards one way and the other was 300 yards the other way and that they were the two great show places, two great spectacles of my childhood, either going to the ceremonies of the church or going to the theatre. And uh, I had that feeling, as I look back on it, that they did have a, an effect upon my imagination. One got a, a, a constant stream of uh, um, English touring companies. Uh, there was a circuit that uh, went around, I think, in some of the towns in the north of England, Liverpool, Manchester, and so on, Bristol, then would cross over to uh, Cork and uh, go on to Dublin or vice versa. And so in that way, one got a lot of plays from the West End of a, generally a pretty inferior kind. They were just... Uh, 
London comedies and so forth, but um, now and again they were mingled in with uh, worthwhile plays. You've got Shaw and you've got Shakespeare, for instance. And uh, you, so that uh, as for the quality of the acting, of course, I couldn't tell because I was only a young fellow. The only people I remember there as actors were Sir Frank Benson and uh, a chap named Doran, Charles Doran or Doran, who was quite a good Shakespearean actor. Um, Sir F. Richardson began with him, and uh, that kind of person. On the other side, you they had the other spectacles, which were more magnificent, of course, and more impressive far, because they had the, they had the, the reality of, uh, of religious belief behind them, and they were awesome, and uh, they, they became a part of the pattern of one's life. They, 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 they were irresistible, but truly they were both rather irresistible to me. They, the, the back door of the theatre was only across the street from us, and uh, the side door of the church, I am repeating myself, was only down the street from us also. pulpit and the proscenium together there. Well, Callboy and stage doorman John Varian went over familiar territory when we both paid a visit to the present opera house during a quiet afternoon. The old theatre had certain smells, even, you know, which sort of lended itself to the atmosphere. As we say, long ago, the scenery wasn't painted with, with emulsion or things like that. It was mostly... Colours which were mixed up, and you all bit of size thrown in to keep it on, otherwise it peel off, as you know. And uh, at times, a few buckets of dirt would be around it, would be smelling quite well. <laughs> and the mixture of that and the grease paint. Oh, the mixture of that and the grease paint. <laughs> <laughs> Always. And then we used to have circuses as well come down there, you know. We used to have one door, practically once a year, and the animals used to be kept in all different places. I remember the seals used to be kept right across the state, right across Half Moon Street in Peter Young's electrical shop. Well, as it where you just walk in there. And uh, you had the elephants and the horses and stables down in the Brown Street. <laughs> so they didn't and they'd have to be walked up every day, like into the show, like for the, for the performers. They didn't occupy the normal dressing rooms. No, no, <laughs> certainly not. No, 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 no. Do you ever recall any like, boxing matches being on there? Well, there was a boxing match, all right. It was the Monster Branch, I think, that that put it on. Uh, well, Butcher Horn and a few more like that, you see. And I don't know that Timmy McNamee boxed there. Quite a few, but boxing wasn't... I wasn't into the boxing, but I remembered it as well, and it, boxing was very popular at the time. And how did they convert the stage into a boxing ring? Well, they just put a ring on, that was all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Even though there was a slight slope on the stage, you know. They just put on the, on the mat and then put the ring around it, and that was it. So people were only watching from one side, really? More or less. Well, they did, did have people around the sides of the, the wings on the prompt side and the OP side and backstage, you know? I see. Around it, but they, most of the people were out in front. I see. Just uh, looking in. What are your strongest memories? Well, uh, there are quite a few, I suppose, you could say, because I worked in all departments of the Opera House backstage. I started as a call boy there. 
when my father was stage manager. And uh, I went through the stage itself, through the flies and uh, back to Orman. I suppose I remember mostly, we say, McMaster's now was one that used to come down and his wife was a very pleasant woman. And they used to put on a series of shows. Shakespearean. Shakespearean, yes. Uh, and like that, they used to get the attendances sometimes that they should, that they did deserve. But uh, McMaster's really never worried over that. I thought that uh, his main interest was giving entertainment to the public. Rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function stooping with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. For Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do, had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears, and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant, and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Anu McMaster. Another actor who made a return visit to the banks for the reopening of the new opera house saw the reality of playing Shakespeare in quite a different light. Although, mind you, I, I do miss that sound of that leaky cistern at the back of the pit. Do you remember that? You know, it was, it kind of gave you inspiration. You'd be in the middle of a wonderful speech there from Hamlet. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. And the back door of the pit would open you'd hear. <laughs> you know, I well remember my first appearance here on the stage of the old Cork Opera House. I played the part of the changeling boy in Midsummer's Night's Dream with Sir Frank Benson's touring company. I was four years old at the time. I just had one line to say. I had to scream when Puck put me or took me off. Roar! The night came. No scream. I got paid just the same, though. No? <laughs> A box of chocolates. Chris Curran there. Well, at least Chris got paid for his first professional performance. A box of chocolates was indeed reward for a young child actor. But money wasn't always available either to pay for the plush seats in the boxes and people queued on the iron steps for the cheaper early doors and the gods to watch performers. Whether they were paid or not was another matter. The amateur tradition had now built up a huge following, but standards were always adhered to. If it weren't, a voice from the gods was sure to oblige with a suitable comment. Local performer Chris Sheehan, for many years the leading man in operetta and opera, was definitely under no illusions. Well, I'll tell you, the old opera house in Cork, i tell you, it was a must for people. A must. I mean, pantomimes. I mean, there were people that, that, that... Monday night was... That was it, the opera house, Monday night. They come out Monday night and 
they spread the good word and from that on. Perspective of that, people went there. As a matter of fact, no, one of my greatest critics long call was down the call because she was a Monday nighter. And uh, they'd be all telling you when you come off the stage how good you were, but I I wanted to hear hers, you see, and it'd go down the call on the Tuesday morning. And I, Chris, come here a while. I was in last night. I didn't like the soprano. She was very trotty, very trotty. And come here, when you came down that time with the girl, you found that a bit difficult. She'd be able to, put her, <laughs> to put her finger in it, you know. I'd, what happened by to loosen out your two week? <laughs> you know, these were people, do you know? When world-acclaimed Australian baritone Peter Dawson paid a visit in the 30s, the reaction was anything but favourable from the gods, and indeed the press critics. The local press reported that Mr Dawson's voice was very small on stage. The consensus from the gods was that Peter Dawson was a huge disappointment. They informed him that they wanted him to perform the prologue from Pagliacci. His recording of it had been spinning around on gramophones around the city. When the audience prevailed upon him to sing the song, he addressed the gods and said, Well, you surely have heard that too often. And a voice from the gods came back, Yes, from a much better singer. Harsh words indeed. I think that may have been Mr Dawson's first and last visit to the Opera House. Gallant signors, sweet signors, pray forgive this bold intrusion, but my rule could not permit me to acquaint you, I was near When the ransom you have paid me On your journey safe continue Don't resist me, don't refuse me Who am I, all then and here? I am the bandolero Gallant bandolero I rule the mountains and I claim As one the band that comes my way I am the bandolero King with a sword for fear I am an outlaw I am a kingdom beneath my sway An outlaw with kingdom beneath my sway other strong favourites were Maritana and the Bohemian Girl. As far back as 1878, Cork audiences fell in love with Gilbert and Sullivan when a few locals put on an amateur production of HMS Pinafore only two years after its premiere in London. The Doily Card Company visited Cork before the outbreak of the Second World War. The locals could at that stage hum all the airs from all the well-known works. The Gondoliers... The Omen of the Guard, Ayalanthe, the Pirates of Penzance, and of course the Mikado.
James N. Healy, a well-known performer with the Operatic Society, had strong connections with the Savoyards from an early age indeed. He played the comic baritone roles in all the GNS shows locally. He was also a keen observer from the other side of the footlights. And I remember one particular night they were doing Trovatore, Verdi's Trovatore, which is of course a very dramatic opera, fellas throwing themselves all, shouting their heads off all over the stage. And at the uh, end of the first act, uh, there is a big trio, the tenor, the baritone and the soprano. And um, the chap doing the tenor, he'd obviously been very well entertained by Cork people before he, he came in, you see. And he was fluted, in other words. And he, he in, the, in the vigorous thing at the end of Act One, he nearly took the baritone's head off with the sword. And then when the second act opened, it opens as you may remember with the the gypsy chorus, and he's asleep uh, in his mother's lap. And it was a devil of a job to get him to stand up and sing. And when before the third act opened, the, the visiting manager came before the the curtain, and he said. He was very sorry that Mr. I won't give his name uh, couldn't appear in the next act because he'd had a sudden attack of malaria. And there was a voice in Gosby, Jesus, I wouldn't mind a bottle of that myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was that, uh, actually that uh, performance. It was Il Trovatore. And the tenor wasn't terribly good, but he was all right. But evidently he knew that the top note was not going to come off. So he flung up his arm in a wide gesture to take the attention off his voice. But the relentless note came down from the gallery. Don't point to it, boy. Sing it. after the burning, the reality and the myth is fused. Myth and reality now are getting really mixed up here, like. You have the situation where the fellas should say the dockers with their black faces would be down there with the score open on their knees in front of them. Well, I mean, you couldn't even follow the score in the dark anyway, so let's dismiss that offhand, you know. But I do know that my own father and many other people would go straight down from work. I always carry his uh, food up to him, up to where he worked and in guise, and he'd go straight down to the early doors and sit down at six o'clock waiting to get in. So they did actually go down very early to get in. The early doors was um, a term used, and it, it meant this. An iron, unprotected steps ran up the outside wall of the opera house, and you queued for the seats in the gods. These could not be pre-booked, so you had to come early, uh, queue on the steps and take your chances until the doors opened and then everyone bought their tickets in a mad rush and it was a case of first come first served uh, hence the term early doors I can remember a particularly very bad night going to see a performance of uh, Oyalante, uh, standing on those steps and looking across at St Mary's Church in the wind and rain uh, hoping that somebody would come along quickly and open those doors and leave us in a particularly bad bad night and also, 
uh, you would enjoy watching people coming into these phenomena which we didn't know what they were at the time proper. We found out afterwards there were theatre boxes and see people coming and going in these from doors at the back. Uh, we consider it an unusual phenomenon to see these things happening. This one, uh, it was full of what I used to call, or what I do call now, Edwardian opulence, you know. Every piece of upholstery was red plush and gold braid, and whenever they could be introduced, tassels, you know, dangling tassels. And the makeup of it was so nice. There were two tiers of boxes at either side of the stage, three, one above the other, and very secluded. You couldn't see from them, of course, didn't matter, especially the top one. You crack your neck if you saw the stage, because you'd have to come out very far. Oh. But the lower one was nice, and uh, at that time, when I was young, uh, it, it was uh, the habit of the British officers from the barracks to come down and occupy the boxes whenever they could, and especially if they were musical comedy. Well, I would have known these people. Some people up there would have known them, probably to work for them or something like that. As you know, associated with opera, there's always the snobbery element att attached with the culture vultures who go to opera, not because they appreciate the music, but because they have to be seen there. And you had a lot of these people going to the boxes. And of course, I think what a lot of us didn't realise at the time, that if you rented a box, it wasn't much more per individual if you balanced it up between eight people rather than paying individually. I didn't find out until much later when I started going to the theatre and I went to Dublin and that happened to me. But um, the, the boxes were very near the stage, of course, like, and the tradition was that the actors or the performers would, you know, pay uh, respect to the people who were paying the top-class money. But there was a big difference, I think. Post-war years, Bill Toomey was appointed manager of the Opera House. I, I remember certainly nights when I, I felt elevated above myself. And I, I'm not a terribly theatrical person, to be honest with you. I, I was put in there as a sort of a business person. But I, I did feel a sense of theatrical excitement on, on, on some nights. Uh, one was uh, when Siobhan McKenna played St. John. She, she was absolutely wonderful. She, she played it uh, with a Galway accent as a peasant, which she was supposed to be a peasant. But th that night I, I felt a great uh, uplift. Yes. I am alone on earth. I have always been alone. My father told my brothers to drown me if I would not stay to mind his sheep while France was bleeding to death. France might perish 
If only our lambs were safe. I thought France would have friends in the court of the King of France. And I find only wolves. Whatever was on the stage, drinking was an essential part of the night's entertainment. It was a very peculiar bar. It was a circular bar, you see, right under, literally right under the roof. And I remember the windows were very low down, maybe knee high, that's all. And of course, with the people coming in after, at the interval, the pints had to be poured much earlier. So by the time the people got in, the pints were dreadful. They were supposed to be the worst pints that were ever poured, actually. They'd be flattened, there'd be, there'd be bubbles in them. They were absolutely appalling by general account. I was too young to drink at that stage. How about the Gideon's? Because as well as that, you see, I had an aunt there as well. You see, which was, she was very well known. She, used, she was clean there, and she was also serving the gallery bar. Noni Callahan, she was known as. Noni. Apparently, the, the story goes that they served the worst pint in town in the gallery bar. Is that right? Well, they did for the simple reason that they, they just before the interval, they'd have all the glasses there, you see, and they'd have a wall and three-quarter full, you see. And then they'd come along with their enamel jugs full of the high stuff and, and top them all up, you see. <laughs> of course, the heat at the time in the gallery... You'd be damn glad of any point. <laughs> and uh, it went down, I'm sure, just as well as uh, any frothy point would go down now. Ah, hi. Well, drink or no drink, there was an unfortunate clash of the ash when an amateur company decided to work with a professional company. And then things happened. My father was involved in one of the productions of the Stanley Ilse Leo McCabe. It was Somerset Mom's play, Rain. When the touring companies came down, they only brought the principal actors with them and uh, relied on local people to fill in for the bit parts. And in Rain, it's set in the South Sea Islands, so they wanted some natives, three or four natives, to fill in for them, run on stage with cigarettes and that kind of thing. And Tommy Bridgman, God be good to him, was in charge of uh, costumes at the time. And Tommy had a shop in the Colke, of course, and we knew each other well. And uh, Tommy asked my father and a friend of his, Paddy Connors, and another girl to step in and play the parts of the natives, and they duly did. And I remember going down every night to the opera house after the show, or during the show, I'd stand backstage, and they'd have to paint themselves with this dye to give themselves the appearance of being Polyne Polynesian natives, and all they had was a little song around them. And uh, after the show, it went to close, the facilities were appallingly bad, and all they had was a bucket of cold water to try and get it off. And I think whatever he got paid for the part anyway, I think it cost my mother far more than washing sheets with all the <laughs> stuff that was on them. <laughs> Everything was going grand that week until Friday night when a lot of the local Colker boys went down to see the show. And uh, my father at the time was known as the Doc because he was carried a medicine bag for the local Bridewell Soccer Club. And, of course, there's a doctor in the play. And at the end of the play, when the principal actors were being presented on stage, and the crowd up and the gods were shouting, oh, we want the doc. And the, the doctor in the play was actually produced, and they were shouting, not you, we want the real doc, you know. <laughs> and uh, there was pandemonium that night. It was great fun, actually.
Unfortunately, time is running out for the fun, the gaiety, the slaggings, the strongly felt opinions and comments. In the Opera House column of the Evening Echo of December 12th, 1955, instead of the usual, tonight at 8, early doors open at 7pm, pit stalls 2 and 6, gallery 1 and 3, the column ran, closed next week, panto rehearsals, opening December 26th, spectacular panto, The Sleeping Princess. In front page, another potential princess was also in the news. The inhabitants of Monaco, the vest-pocket Mediterranean principality, wished their ruler, Prince Rainier II, good luck as he departed for America to bring back a bride. The paper went on to comment about the prince being without an heir and how the future depended on his marrying soon. It is rumoured, the paper went on to say, that he may well re-meet film star Grace Kelly, whom he had met while he was filming on the Riviera. Under the radio column, Dinjo was taking the floor at eight o'clock. While the cute kiddies were making the rehearsal floor, and indeed dancing on it in the opera house, somewhere, somehow, a little spark, unfortunately, was beginning to kindle. I was in my office at the front opening pantomime bookings. We were rehearsing for the pantomime at the time, and uh, the children were on stage, the little tiny tots and cute kiddies, and uh, the main people were up in a bar upstairs under James Stack and uh, when I, I smelt burning in the theatre and I wondered what it was. I rang the fire brigade and uh, asked them to come over to check because I was a little uneasy but before they came uh, there was a, a bang at the window and uh, it was Ted Whitaker had come across the river. He had an office on the other side of the river and he saw flames coming through the roof and he banged on my window and said there are flames coming out of the roof of the theatre bill and of course I dialed 999. The fire brigade came over but I, I knew even then that uh, it was such an old building that, uh, that this was the end. I was a fireman at the time and I was off duty. I got a call to proceed to the fire station as the Cork copper post was in fire. Uh, I got into such a position actually in under the bar and we fought the fire under the stage. During the course of the fire there was a big gas main left lighting all night to direct the firemen and the police to prevent intruders coming into the building. I went in under the, sta the iron stairs right into the bar. That's where I finished up, inside in the bar. And the corks were popping from the bottles of stove. Because God, I couldn't, couldn't get over it. So she came down with me, and we stood over by the riverside there, you know. And uh, the, uh, I just said to her, I said, if, that, if it catches that corner, no, I said, it is finished. Because I knew where all our stuff was on the counter. And the person standing in front of me. I didn't see her. She turned around to me and she said, me, she said, you always said you wouldn't like to see it going up in flames. You're looking at it now, she said. She was the manageress. And, you know, after a real busy night, she said, will anybody put a match to it and take us out of it? I think... Everybody in Cork, anyway, remembers two things, clearly. I think the night the Opera House was burned down and the night Kennedy was murdered. And uh, the night that the Opera House was burned down, I was in the college that night, and I could see the flames at about 9 o'clock, I think, about... We could see the flames lighting up 
the uh, western, the eastern sky. So it was in the centre of the city. I lived down in, in the Cork so I went straight down to have a look. It was pouring rain, absolutely pouring rain. And uh, I went down uh, Pope's Kier, the Sankia. We were looking at it from there because you had a wonderful view across the river at it. And eventually I went up to Norcape Bridge and came down home. But we lived right behind the Opera House and the cinders and the soot was falling off it. It was as big as my fist. And I think only for the fact that it was so wet, I think a lot of cock would have gone up and smoked that night. Were you afraid? House. We were, yeah. I think we were a bit afraid that the house would be burnt all right. But the rain was so heavy that it was washing it off of the roofs, off of the slates, right down into the yard. When the early morning dawn broke, it was a beautiful sight to see the old uproars gutted and four beer was standing. And was the iron steps still there? The iron steps were still there, and I just often thought of going up the iron stairs and looking down at the singers below. Well, I felt there was something on over my life, something big. I saw it, I said, this is it, this is the end. No, I knew, I knew that, uh, as a matter of fact, at the moment I thought that in no time there'd be a new opera house built. But uh, I don't know what it was. It was something gone, you know. A curtain, at least the curtain was came down on something. Oh, man, it was... It was a, a chunk of a fella's life, in other words, you know. The shock, uh, even today, uh, it's, uh, it was indescribable. We were rehearsing for the Christmas pantomime. And a few hours later, there was just four bare walls, nothing, nothing. Exactly ten years later, on the 30th of October, 1966, Uchtaran Eamon de Valera opened the new opera house. I accepted very readily the invitation to the committee to come here. And as I've said in Irish, particularly because it gave me an opportunity of saying publicly what I felt very deeply, the appreciation that is due to the committee and to the people of Cork for the cooperative effort by which they raised the money and that they brought about this for us here in Cork, the people of Cork, this splendid new uh, theatre and opera house. The old opera house, I think, was really of the city. The people were so used to going there that they went there every night, or one night of every week, to see every show that came there. And they were represented all the different classes of the city. Really, right across the board. I don't think the new opera house represents that at all, I think. I think it's a very middle-class organisation now. I think uh, the same kind of people will go to it all the time. And I don't think it really has anything like the same attraction. The, the cross-class section that the old opera house had, I don't think that's there at all now. After 30 years, what did the flames not erase? Oh, the front row and the cards was replaced, you know, because you have the, all the fun there, because you're in the background, you can't see what's going on below. Right, so it was to see the action they see on the, the action. stage, off the stage, exactly, and around. And it. if you're in the front or second row, 
you had great night's entertainment on and off stage. Huge height. A colossal height. Not quite as high as the Savoy, no. But a huge height. If you were looking almost perpendicular down, actually. You know, it was a very tight theatre altogether. The depth of the building wasn't in proportion to the width of it. So you were actually looking straight down practically on the stage. I remember one dreadful experience I had. I would have been about 15. And I took myself off alone to the gallery. Now, if there would have been pandemonium at home, if my mother knew I was come to the gallery, not to mind going alone. But when the door opened, my feet never touched the ground from that moment till I got up into my seat. I, was, I don't remember paying. I never got to the ticket office. But the press of the crowd was so great that I was small uh, that uh, it pressed on. But it had one benefit, it got me into the front row. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.